well-known statement written in Lewis's quaint and somewhat strange to our ears British vernacular of 80 years ago. He said of Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. Now this is known as Lewis's trilemma, because it says that Jesus gives us three and only three options. He was either a lunatic, or he was a liar, or he is the Lord. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. On this Easter holiday, I want us to see why you should acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And that's because of what we celebrate today, namely, he's alive. Now, we're going to see the three key truths in the passage that were read earlier and that you have open in front of you. In verse 3, the key truth is that Christ died. In verse 4, that he was raised. And those two truths make a profound difference. Down in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. This morning, I, I want you to see that when you believe in his death and resurrection, it changes your life. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you that we are gathered on this special Lord's Day to remember particularly what the Lord Jesus Christ did on our behalf in his death and then rising from the grave. Those of us who you have brought to yourself and have a relationship with you because of your grace in our lives, we know the difference that it makes. It's our desire, Lord, that you would move on the hearts of any who came into this room today without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and giving their lives to Him as their Lord, that they today on this holy day would be changed by Your power. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now you should have received an outline when you came in, and I say, first of all, in that outline that you should believe in Easter for a few reasons. The first is because you doubt your doubts. We always believe something, and we never stop believing. Even when we doubt one thing, it forces us to believe another. In a book titled The Critique of Doubt, the author argues that doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. Now why? He says, quote, the doubting of any explicit statement denies one belief in favor of other beliefs which are not doubted for the time being. So, for example, one cannot say, no one can know enough to be certain about God and religion, 
unless you assume at that moment that you know enough about the nature of religious knowledge to be certain about your claim. That is, you have to believe you know enough to say that no one can know enough. And you should really doubt that. You should also doubt your doubts about God's character. We've all heard someone say, or perhaps you have said, I don't believe in God because how could God allow wars and poverty and natural disasters? But notice, that question does not get to whether God exists, but whether or not we like the way God runs things. You may not like me and the way I do things, but that doesn't mean I I don't exist, though it may mean you wish I didn't. In his book, The God Delusion, British atheist Richard Dawkins said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. In short, God is a moral monster. Well, Richard, just tell us how you feel. (laughs) He seems to have an attitude toward God, all the while claiming God doesn't exist. How can you be angry with someone who doesn't exist? But here he is making these moral judgments against God, And all the while failing to realize that, as one has said, what Dawkins doesn't seem to realize is that if his atheism is true, there would be no moral high ground to occupy. If our world is is the product of amoral forces, and if man is simply cosmic flotsam scattered on the shores of time, then morality simply does not exist. Nothing can be good and nothing evil. Right and wrong are concepts devoid of meaning. The belief underlying this doubt is that if you cannot discern a sufficient reason for an act of God, then there can't be any. That is, you doubt that God can have good reason for what He does, which means you believe that you can evaluate God's motives and plans. You should really doubt that you can have such confidence in your own insight. You should also question your doubts about Christians and the church. There are too many hypocrites in the church. We've heard that said many times. One answer to that is there's always room for one more. (laughs) Seriously, one, one former doubter said, I came to realize the moral standards I was using to judge hypocritical believers came mainly from Christianity itself. The worst thing I could say about Christians was that they weren't being Christian enough, but why should they be if Christianity wasn't true at all? And bear in mind, friends, that Christians' susceptibility to the charge of hypocrisy is in large part due to the fact that we have a very high and public standard against which we're judged. Those charging us with hypocrisy most often have no standard and so have nothing against which they're evaluated. If you are always your own standard, you can always meet it. No one came into this room today who is not a believer in something. 
Even your doubts betray your beliefs. In order to believe in Easter, then, you need a crisis of faith in your current beliefs, even those on which your doubts are based. You should believe in Easter because you doubt your doubts. And I say, because you trust the Scriptures. In order for you to believe in what we celebrate today, you have to see the inadequacy of your current religious beliefs, even if your religion is comprised of one person, you, at the center of your life. And even if you're going to replace yourself as the object of your devotion with Jesus, you're going to believe in the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, where, as it is, you now trust yourself. Our passage says this about the two truths that it's highlighting. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, He was raised according to the Scriptures. Christianity and what we know of it are based on the Scriptures that you have in your hand. That book, the Bible, is divided into two major sections. The first part is called the Old Testament, and it was completed about 400 years before Christ came to earth, and that started the New Testament. The book that we are looking at, 1 Corinthians, is in the New Testament. When it was written, only the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, had been completed. But passages there pointed to the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, and foretold what He would do, including His death and His resurrection. With regard to His death, the Old Testament, 1,500 years before Jesus, set out the principle of substituting the death of one life for the benefit of another. If you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, it's based on, you may remember, Charlton Heston, (laughs) That would be Moses telling Yul Brenner, that would be Pharaoh, to release God's people from slavery in Egypt. Now that eventually happens, but not before God forced Pharaoh's hand, including the death of each firstborn Egyptian child. In order to avoid this terrible fate, families were to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorpost of their home. Those that did were passed over. And so to this day, Judaism celebrates the holy day of Passover. And it comes from Exodus chapter 12. God said, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. In order to keep this principle of substitution of one life for another before the people, God made it part of the religious practice of Israel so that on a special day each year the high priest would sprinkle blood on the altar in the tabernacle to cover the sins of the people. That day was called the Day of Atonement or in Hebrew Yom Kippur, which is celebrated to this day. And with that imagery in place, the Bible later predicts the coming of the Messiah as a sacrifice for the sins of His people. Through the prophet Isaiah, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This was all planned by God hundreds of years before, and even going back to before the foundation of the world. Because the Bible says of Jesus that He was, that we were redeemed 
with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. When our passage in verse 3 says, Christ died for our sins. We've had a number of our songs today which have highlighted the fact that Jesus took our place. That He took the penalty that we deserve. And that's because of passages like this. Christ died for our sins. And the Greek word, your New Testament was written in Greek, that's translated for, indicates substitution. Christ died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. His death paid the penalty that we deserved. And this is why it's called the gospel, which means good news. Back up in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Without our penalty being, being paid, there is no good news. But thanks be to God, God has come in the flesh, paid the penalty for us, and thus it is the gospel good news. His death is according to the Scriptures. And so is His resurrection. 700 years before Jesus came, it was predicted, again by the prophet Isaiah, though the Lord makes His life an offering for sin, He will prolong His days and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand after He has suffered he will see the light of life. When our passage says the death and resurrection of Jesus is according to the Scriptures, the word Scripture is a technical term in the Bible for the authoritative writings from God. And so the Bible says of itself, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, all Scripture has come out from God to, to us. It came from God, and that is why it has full authority. And God has preserved His instructions for us in writing. In fact, the Greek word translated Scripture is graphe. We get graffiti from it. It's the writings. And only those writings that are from God are in the category of Holy Scripture, a category that had been established for 400 years by the time of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament. And the authority of the New Testament writings was not conferred by some church council centuries after they were composed, but they were recognized as Scripture as they were being written. Almost half of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul, including the book at which we're looking, 1 Corinthians. Another of the Scripture writers, the Apostle Peter, said this about what Paul wrote. Our dear brother Paul wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other. Now notice, the Scriptures. Peter is saying that the letters that Paul was writing at the time Peter was alive we're on par with the other scriptures, going all the way back to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the authoritative writing from God. And all of this in the life of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, is according to the scriptures, which means then a call to believe in Easter and the resurrection that it represents is a call to believe what the scriptures say. And you have every reason to do so. But some of you have been misled about the accuracy of the Bible. 
and so you turn a deaf ear to it. It's amazing the misconceptions that people have about Scripture. One thing that you can be sure of when Easter and Christmas come around, as much as you can be sure of bunnies and eggs and Rudolph and Santa, is that at both times of year, the media is going to trot out so-called experts to tell you why the stories in the Bible are really myths on the level with Aesop's fables. So to Lewis's trilemma of lunatic, liar, or Lord, they seek to make a quadrilemma, adding a fourth possibility, lunatic, liar, Lord, or it's just a legend. I heard one such expert on the radio this week, a man who's well known for comparing the books of the New Testament that we call the, the Gospels, the first four that narrate the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. He compares those to the game of, of telephone. You all remember that? And so you originate a message to one person and then they give it to another person another person and then the idea is by the time it gets to the end it's completely a different, different message. As I listened to him on the radio, I was reminded of the words of those great theologians, Steely Dan. The things that pass for knowledge I can't understand. You see, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are quite unlike that telephone game. Because all four bear the marks of being the product of independent eyewitness testimony to the events in the details that they include and the casualness with which they include them. That is, the Gospels are a record of eyewitness testimony by multiple people who were there, and they include matters that one would not insert if he were making it up. I have time for just one example in the Gospel of John. In the very first chapter, it's making the case that the human Jesus is also God. He is God having come as man. And as John is making that case, he quotes John the Baptist, a different John, John the Baptist, saying this. John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, notice that that's in parentheses. It's in parentheses in your Bible. I didn't add the parentheses. It's a parenthetical statement, one that the writer, the Apostle John, remember he had heard that John the Baptist said Jesus was before him. It's a detail that fits what he's saying, so he decides apparently on the fly to insert it. So was Jesus physically older than John the Baptist? Turns out the answer is no. And we know that the answer is no from another of the gospel writers, Luke, who records that Jesus is actually six months younger than John the Baptist. But the people who first read John would not necessarily have had what Luke wrote about Jesus and John the Baptist. So on the one hand, it confirms what Luke says about their respective ages, because John's using it to say, even though he's younger in human years, he's older in existence because he's God. And it also suggests that John in his gospel is not inserting the words, he was before me, into the mouth of John the Baptist. Instead, he's recounting what John the Baptist actually said, happening to remember it, 
noting its significance to himself and mentioning it as a brief aside, a parenthetical remark, before getting back to his own argument that Jesus is God. In fact, John may well not have stopped to think about whether all of the relevant background had been fleshed out for his readers. That's not the kind of thing that happens when somebody's just copying what somebody else said or making it up. If you're interested in this topic of how the gospel writers reinforce one another, I recommend Lydia McGrew's Hidden in Plain Sight. Dr. McGrew and her husband form an apologetics team that refute false notions of skeptics. Dr. Tim McGrew is the chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Western Michigan University. But this same scholar that I heard on the radio uses the telephone game analogy not only of the gospel records, but for the New Testament manuscripts as a whole. The entire New Testament we have is, he says, the tail end of centuries-long corruption of the originals. The books have been copied from one language to another language and then into another until by this time what we have and what was originally written are worlds apart. The truth is, the Bible you have in your hand is not the product of copying from one language to another, to another, and to another, so that we finally get something in English. Rather, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and what we have is the product of one translation step from those languages into ours, from Hebrew to English, from Greek to English. The Old Testament manuscripts were copied by scribes trained to do that very thing, and their amazing accuracy was confirmed with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. The New Testament has been preserved in its Greek manuscripts and is the most well-attested ancient writing in existence. Author Neil Shenvey in his book, Why Believe, says, While with the original New Testament documents, we are in precisely the same situation with respect to almost every other book written centuries before the invention of the printing press in the 15th century. Among these documents, the New Testament is by far the best attested. For comparison, the second best attested ancient document is Homer's Iliad, for which we have only 1,800 manuscripts and fragments, compared with over 5,000 manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament in the original language. And the New Testament fares just as well if we consider the time between the original writing of the document and the oldest known fragment. 400 years for the Iliad versus 50 for the New Testament. Or if we compare the time of the original writing of the document and the oldest complete manuscript, 1,600 years for the Iliad, 300 for the New Testament. You should believe in Easter because you doubt your doubts, because you trust the Scriptures, and because you accept the evidence. Our passage, again, is making two points. Christ died and Christ rose from the dead. Now, it may look like at first glance that he has four points. Christ died, he was buried, verse 4, he was raised, verse 4, and then in verse 5, he appeared. So he died, he was buried, was raised, and appeared. But it's really two points and then two actions that support each. That he was buried is proof that he died. And that he appeared to people is proof that he was raised. 
With regard to his resurrection, the Bible says that Jesus showed himself alive to people for nearly six weeks, particularly his first followers, the apostles. The Bible says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. One of those apostles was Peter in our passage called Cephas in verse 5. Cephas was his Jewish name. And verse 5 says he appeared to the 12 apostles. But in those 40 days, he appeared not only to the apostles, but to other people in other circumstances, as verse 6 says. Notice verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now that line, most of whom are still living, versus those who have died, fallen asleep, is saying that these people are still alive you, those people who first received this letter from Paul, you could go ask them. And he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother and the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. He's the James who wrote the book in the Bible that bears his name. But last of all, Jesus appeared to Paul himself, who wrote what we're reading. Verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. When he says abnormally born, he's saying he was not part of the original group that Jesus chose, chose, but he became a follower later. In fact, the next verse is teaching that. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He is an apostle, but he became one years after the others and only after he had persecuted Christ's church. He was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus sought him and met him on his way to persecute still more Christians. And the great apostle Paul was converted, having seen the risen Christ, testifying to it for us and significantly dying for what he claimed to have seen. So you accept the evidence. Paul had the evidence right before him. He saw the risen Christ. The others did as well. Most of them gave their lives for what they claimed to be true. Now hear this, friends. One piece of evidence that the resurrection really happened is that people do not give their lives for what they know to be untrue. And yet that's what all of the apostles of Jesus did, including the Apostle Paul. Further, we are celebrating Easter, the resurrection, on Sunday, the first day of the week. Prior to that first Easter in the first century, when Jesus rose from the dead, prior to that, the day of worship was Saturday, the seventh day, the Sabbath. And something so momentous happened that centuries of religious worship were changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week to Sunday. And that's why we gather as Christians every Sunday because the resurrection happened. You would know of Jesus, even if you didn't have the Bible, you would know the details for sure, but you have outside of the Bible extra-biblical sources who testify to his existence and what he did. Sources like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny. And from them you would learn that there was a Jewish man named Jesus who lived in first century Judea. He had a brother named James. He was called the Christ or Messiah by his followers. 
He did seemingly miraculous deeds. He was brought to the Roman authorities by the Jewish religious leaders and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The movement he founded was first checked by his execution, that is, pause, but later reemerged and spread as far as Rome. The early Christians chanted to Jesus as if to a god and refused to worship other gods even on pain of death. They met regularly, shared a communal meal, and pledged to live moral lives. It's exactly what you see in the Bible about how Christians lived and what they believed. The fact of his life and ministry is just that, a fact, but the significance of that requires the interpretation of Scripture. He died, he lived, he was raised, but hear this, he died for our sins, the Bible says. And he was raised, the Bible says, for our justification so that we can have right standing before God. And so you should believe in Easter because you doubt your doubts, you trust the Scriptures, you accept the evidence, and lastly, you welcome the benefit. What happens when you believe in who Jesus is and what He did? Well, that includes, I say in the outline, a break with the past. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage, had a past, and an ugly past at that. Again in verse 9, I, Paul, persecuted the church of God. Paul stood by and watched people murder Christians. He helped them do that. He facilitated their deaths, persecuting the church. A break with the past. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, You leave your past in the past. And you are not then what you were. And you are no longer dominated by what you did. And there is no one who has done anything that cannot and will not be forgiven by the Savior. Paul never forgot the depths from which he had come. And there were times where he would focus his attention on what he had been. I persecuted the church, but he would quickly remind himself, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so, dear friend, whatever you've done, Jesus is your Savior. He invites you to receive the gift that he offers, the death that he died on your behalf on the cross paying for your sin in full by His blood. It involves a break with the past, whatever that past is. It involves, I say in your outline, a change in the present. Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all. That is all the other apostles. He's not bragging because he says then, but it's not me. It's the grace of God that was with me. One of our songs today said that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that works in us. That's what the Bible teaches. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you if you belong to Him. And so He changes you. You don't clean up your act then and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and by His power, He begins to clean up your act. 
It's a break with the past, a change in the present, and a guarantee for the future. Verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 15 says that in, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So whatever is going on in your life, whatever it is you struggle with, whatever has happened in your life, when you come to Jesus, there is always a guarantee of a glorious future. Because He was raised, we will be raised. And we will be with Him forever. And so friends, I pray that you will have that crisis of faith, what you brought in here that you believed. And that you'll turn your belief to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to give you opportunity to do that as we close in prayer. Here's your take-home truth. The Bible provides ample reason to believe the resurrection. So when we pray, you have opportunity on this Easter for this to be your spiritual birthday. And it involves you realizing that you are a sinner like me, like the Apostle Paul. And recognizing that Christ died on the cross, Josephus recognized that, Pliny recognized that, Tacitus recognized that. We know that there was a guy named Jesus who lived and then died on the cross. We know that, but recognize this, he died on the cross for your sins. Your sins, past, present, and future. You repent, you say, Lord, I am no longer going to go my way, I'm going to go your way. That's what repent means. And you do that from your heart to God when we bow here in just a moment. There's no magic incantation or formula. You say from your heart, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the only solution to my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I give my life to you. In three weeks, we have a baptism. We would love to help you take your first step of obedience. So let us know that you've trusted Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for this privilege of being here on this special Lord's Day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God come as man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for his absolutely righteous life that's applied to us, his robes for mine when we come to him. We thank you that his blood on the cross covers all of our sin, not just in the past, but those things with which we still struggle and will do in the future, all of it, past, present, future. And so, Lord, those of us who know you, we thank you profoundly for the meaning of this day. We ask you in your mercy to reach into the hearts of some in this room, many in this room, who may have come with other beliefs, doubts that are beliefs, affirmative beliefs, contrary to your truth, and that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, as a result of this, we will give you the praise for it belongs to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.